Okay, good morning, everyone. If, um, if you have your Bibles, if you can turn to 1 Peter in chapter 3, we're going to be carrying on our series called Exiles, where we're working through the book of 1 Peter. While you're finding your way there, um, just want to share something with you. I recently found out and discovered that my beard is a major cause of unhappiness and frustration in my marriage. <laughs> Steph has a theory that I only ever seem to shave or trim my beard on the day when she's decided to clean the bathroom, precisely in the moments after she's cleaned the bathroom. And apparently, gentlemen, this is not just isolated to my wife. Apparently there are other wives with similar feelings about their husbands. Lots of nodding heads going around, hands in the air. Um, Honestly, whenever I've had a shave, I feel like I've cleaned up as best I could. I can't see any stray hairs lying around, but they're there. They're there, apparently, I just can't see them. But it got to a point uh, the other week when Steph and I were going away on holiday. We had James staying uh, in in our house. He was looking after one of the geckos. Uh, And uh, Steph had got the house really nice and and clean and tidy for him. Uh, She heard a rumour that I might be wanting to have a shave before we we left. She asked me if I would go outside and shave in the garden. (laughs) It got to that point. I politely declined uh, and waited till we were at the hotel. <laughs> so a bit of a compromise going on there. Um, so this morning, it, I think, is actually very timely for us in this point in our series, uh, because we got to this point in 1 Peter, and Peter's focus is on the way in which husbands and wives are to relate to one another, with this understanding that actually sometimes there are these tensions uh, that are there in marriage, and there's actually a, really a, a right and wrong way in, in terms of marriage but in in how God views marriage and the roles he has for men and women and and the responsibilities that he places on both husband and wife. So uh, it's going to be a little bit different today. Um, Steph and I are going to be speaking together. We felt it would be really helpful in talking about marriage to have uh, a kind of a a husband and wife perspective on things because I think she would have insight into things that I wouldn't and likewise I would in uh, that, that she wouldn't. So we're going to we're going to split the time between us this morning. I'm going to do a bit of an introduction and cover the first few verses. Then Steph's going to come up and address in particular the, the, the ladies and the wives uh, amongst us. And then I'm going to come back up and specifically address the guys. I want to say at the start, you know, we're in this coming July, we're going to be celebrating our third anniversary. It feels like it's gone very quickly. Uh, but we want to recognise that you know we're still working this out very much day by day. We're learning a lot with each day, and by no means the fact that we're up here speaking about this—it's not us saying we've got it all sorted out because we know we definitely haven't got it sorted out. So really, this morning we just very humbly want to say we, we just want to explore this together. Uh, and this isn't about necessarily how how Steph and I are doing. This is actually let's find out what God says about marriage and let's build marriages around around that. Uh, if we were waiting for a couple to come and preach who had got marriage absolutely sorted, we'd never talk on it, is the reality of it, because we're all learning our way through it. So, as I say, please just hear mine and Steph's heart. This isn't us saying we, we've got it all sorted out. Actually, we're preaching to ourselves this morning as much as we're preaching to anyone, because we want to build our marriage the way that God wants us to build it and, and take our responsibility and our roles the way that God would have us do it. So while Steph is uh, specifically going to be addressing the ladies and myself, there'll be a bit where I'm addressing the men. This is not an excuse for you to shut off or shut down at the bit where where we're talking to husbands or talking to wives. Please listen to the whole thing. Uh, The reason I say this is because we don't work marriage out individually. We work marriage out together. The title for this morning, we've called it One Flesh, One Future. The first part being (coughs) scripture 
says that actually when a husband and wife come together, they become one flesh. So they become one, they, they become united together, which means actually we don't work marriage out as individuals. We work it out together. So actually, when Steph's talking about the responsibility that, uh, and what, what God is calling wives to be like, husbands, it's important for you to know. Because actually, you need to be able to serve your wives well. You need to be able to help them to grow and to mature in all that, that God has for them. Likewise, wives, it's important to know what God is calling your husbands to, so that you can support them and you can encourage them and help them to grow. We work this out together. Also, if you're not married, please don't switch off. Don't think this morning has got nothing for you. If one day you're hoping to be married, I would say this. Actually, understand what God is looking for in marriage and do whatever you can to get yourself prepared so that when it comes to that point, if it comes to that point where you're going to get married, actually, you've got a pretty good understanding already. You could have worked through some things of character and, and, and got yourself in a good place for that. And actually, whatever uh, your status is in terms of marriage, whether you've been married before, whether you actually you think, I'm, I'm never going to be married, and, and that's what God's calling you to. Again, we don't work out marriages in isolation. All of our relationships we work out in community, and marriage is one of those things we work out in church as well. It's not just an isolated thing. So actually, it's important that we all understand what God is calling our married couples to, uh, and the challenges that are there, so we can be supporting one another, we can be encouraging one another, and strengthening one another. So I think whatever our position is in terms of marriage, actually there's going to be a lot for us to take out of this. One final thing I want to say before really getting into this is uh, if, if you're not married, understand marriage is not kind of the be-all and end-all. It's not the ultimate destination to get to. It's not the place where actually you'll find ultimate fulfillment. That can only be found in Christ. And actually, uh, particularly in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 7 is a very interesting chapter to read because it talks about actually there, there are pros and cons to being married and being not married. And actually, the, the kind of thing coming through in 1 Corinthians 7 uh, is actually Paul saying, actually, do you know what? It's better if you're not married because it means you can give yourself entirely to Christ in a way that someone who's married can't. 1 Corinthians 7 says that, uh, it says that married men and women are anxious about worldly things. They're anxious about how to please their spouse. Uh, and that actually they have, uh, their interests are divided. There's almost a conflict between serving God and serving their spouse. So actually, it, say, please don't think that uh, you're only going to be fulfilled in finding marriage. That is not true. And actually, if you're called to not be married, that is a hugely godly thing. And that's something to be treasured. That's something to be celebrated as well. And actually, the fact that uh, there are these anxieties and, and divided loyalties almost that come along with marriage is part of the reason why Peter's happened to write this in the first place. Because there are these conflicts and anxieties that go along with it. So let's get into 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3. Going to read uh, from verse 1 through to, to verse 7. It says, Likewise... Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewellery or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honour to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, 
so that your prayers may not be hindered. So we're actually jumping back a bit from last week. Uh, when, when Mike was speaking last week, he'd actually jumped a bit further on. That was because it was meant to be Steph and myself preaching last week, but we pretty much everyone, all three of us in our house had come down with various sickness and, and viruses through the week. Mike, huge thank you to Mike. Just want to say publicly, he actually offered, he asked if we could, if we'd be okay to swap in order to serve Steph and, and our family well. So I just want to say thank you because that really was a huge help um, for us. So actually, uh, so we're going to be jumping back a bit from where, where Mike was. And actually these verses follow on from what Luke was speaking about a couple of weeks ago. And Luke was talking about what's our uh, attitude to be, what's our response to be as Christians to to those in authority, to those in government, and to those in leadership. And I think he summed it up really well. He said something along the lines of, as those made in God's image, leaders deserve our respect and our honour, but not our worship. Worship alone is reserved for God. And I thought that was such a helpful way to understand it. Actually, they deserve our honour and our respect, but worship alone belongs to God. So, when, um, when, when Peter starts his passage with the word likewise, it's kind of linking it back to what's come before. Uh, it's following on from what's come before. He's saying, husbands and wives, you're to relate to one another and you're to build your marriage under an umbrella of worship to God alone and of submission to him primarily. You have to make sure that's right. Worship of God alone, submission to him first, all other relationships, including the, the marriage relationship, have to flow out of that. That should not take the place of God. That shouldn't take the place of God. So he's actually saying that there's a, connect, uh, there's a correct order into these things. It's God first. All other relationships have to flow out of that. So that's kind of where, where we're coming from this morning. So then Peter says, wives be subject to or submit to. Is another way of putting it. Submit to your own husbands. I'd say at present, submission is very unfashionable. It's extremely countercultural. Uh, you'll hear a lot of negative things in terms of what it means to, to submit, particularly in the, the husband and wife dynamic. And I would actually say perhaps that's for good reason in some cases where it's been used as an excuse for domineering and abusive behaviour. So I understand why there's a um, sort of a, a concern around that and a tentativeness around that. But actually we need to understand what the, what the scriptures say about what it means to, to, to submit and, and get our eyes fixed actually in line with what the scriptures say rather than what culture uh, would, would say to us. So to understand what submission is, to understand why there is this apparent conflict, we have to go right back to creation. We have to go back to, to what we see in the book of Genesis. Genesis says, in Genesis 1, 26 to 27, it says that men and women were created equally in the image of God. That has to be our starting point. Men and women created equally in the image of God but given different roles in governing creation and in filling it. So different roles and different responsibilities. Man was created to lead, to protect and to provide for all of those under his leadership, okay? So not just his wife, but all of those under his leadership. And woman was created to come alongside and to help the man. She is to encourage and to affirm his leadership. I think that's a really helpful understanding of what submission is. It's coming alongside, it's affirming, and it's encouraging the husband in his leadership, recognising what God has called him to. So equal in value, with different roles, but working together. But working together. After the fall, where worship was directed away from God, and disobedience was directed towards him, all of creation was corrupted. 
not just the relationship between man and God, but actually the relationship, uh, all relationships that we have have been affected by that. It's brought in tensions and conflicts and difficulties there. And we see that in Genesis 3.16, God speaks to the woman and he says that your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. What he's saying there is that there's going to be a struggle of control and domination. So your desire will be for your husband. It's a, a, a desire of control. But for the husband, he shall rule over you, this conflict of, of domination. So we can see this struggle that's centred in that wasn't there. That was not God's intended purpose, but it's something that's come in with the fall. It's a corruption of relationship. It's a corruption of how people relate to one another. Juan Sanchez says that this is the origin of the battle of the sexes. With this background, what Peter is doing in 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7, which is what we're looking at this morning, is showing how the gospel transforms the relationship between man and woman. Undoing the curse of Genesis 3. For believers, marriage is to stop being a periodic or a continuous battlefield. And instead it's to become a place for Christian mission or growth. Actually it's a place where the gospel can be lived out. And what was lost and corrupted can be reclaimed. This call is not about submission to all men. Let's make that very clear. Scriptures never call for that. This is not about women submitting to all men. It says that um, each wife to their own husband need to make that really clear <coughs> it's about wives and husbands for wives to affirm and to encourage the, le- the leadership of their husbands I want to say this as well abusive authority is not okay again scripture does not stand for this abusive authority is not okay if you're in an abusive relationship whether you're a man or a woman whether your partner is a believer or not get help immediately I'm not saying you have to just put up with it and sit by and let these things happen because abusive authority is not okay get help if you're in that situation go to the appropriate authorities speak to the elders in the church speak to someone you trust because it's not what God would want for you (coughs) Peter he specifically addresses women at this point whose husbands are not believers so whose husbands are not followers of Christ but the call is the same is to submit to your husbands to affirm their leadership but actually to remember that your devotion is first and foremost to Christ. That's it. Your devotion is first and foremost to Christ. But because of that, and actually under that, submit to your husbands. Mike Betts, who some of you, hopefully, many of you will be aware of, who heads up Relational Mission, the family of churches we're a part of, he put something out on Twitter the other day, which I thought fitted so well, uh, actually with what Peter's calling these wives to do. He says, when I preach this Sunday, it might last 40 minutes. But my life, if lived well, could preach all week long. Isn't that wonderful? So the words that he speaks in preaching, he could be doing that for 40 minutes. But actually, if he lives his life well, he could be preaching all week long, just in the way in which he conducts himself, just by the way of his behaviour, of his character. And I think this is similar to what Peter's calling wives to be like, uh, wives with unbelieving husbands. Because it's God's heart that unbelieving husbands will be won to him by the conduct of their wives. By the way in which they live. By the example that they set and what a life transformed by the gospel can look like. And he says without a word. Which is quite an interesting thing for us to get our heads around. I think what he's saying is that wives are not to try and pressure their husbands into converting. As well intentioned as that may be. He's saying actually don't, don't put too much pressure on Saying, don't turn every conversation into a gospel presentation where you feel like you just have to be putting the gospel on your husbands all the time. 
You say, and actually wives are to conduct themselves with respectful and pure conduct. That's conduct that is fueled first and foremost by her view of God. It has to come from that. Because godly conduct testifies without words to the truth of the gospel. And will and submission is a part of that. The way in which you live your life, the way in which you conduct yourself, by, by striving to be uh, and, and allowing the Holy Spirit to make you, you pure in your motives and, and in your actions, seeking to live the way that Jesus has called you to, that's going to speak a huge amount to your husband as he witnesses the way in which you're living. I think there, there will be opportunity for conversation. I think when he's saying without a word, he's not saying you can never talk about it. Um, the reason I say that is because later on in 1 Peter 3.15, he says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who gives you a reason for the hope that is in you. I'd suggest that actually, as your husband sees your conduct changing, and as he sees the way in which you're living, he will ask you about it, or it will come up in conversation naturally. And as Peter says, actually, be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. So actually, I think there will be opportunity for those conversations. But these things come out of the way in which you live. And allowing your husbands to see the way in which Jesus, Jesus has changed your life. So allow your husband to see the gospel at work in your life. I think really is what Peter is calling us to. Steph, would you like to come up? I know you're going to address specifically the ladies. Oh, Okay, so, right, I'm just going to read verses 3 to 6. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewellery or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Abraham obeyed, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. That would have been interesting. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Okay, so contextually speaking, the first century women that Peter was, would have been addressing would have wanted to present themselves well. There wasn't necessarily a way of differentiating classes through fashion, so women would have worn luxurious fabrics and expensive jewellery. Women would have put rows of false curls into their hair, making very elaborate high hairstyles, and it would have been to set themselves apart. This concept of adornment is absolutely applicable to us today, perhaps even more so with the UK beauty industry being worth £17 billion, um, and the UK fashion industry a whopping 26 billion. The advancement of mass production dress jewellery and makeup means that if you do not have to go too far to find it, or in some cases spend a lot to own it. It is very important, firstly, to make clear that Peter does not say that adorning is sinful. It is absolutely important that we take care of ourselves, to be clean and hygienic, and to take pride in our appearance. Although, in the current stage of life I'm in, if I manage to leave the house without my hair on a bun and with mascara on, I consider it a luxury. When I was doing a little bit of research into the previous figures, I found this unbelieving article that, about the dramatic increase of makeup sales since the invention of the selfie has become a fashionable activity. The director of UK Beauty at the MPD Group, June Jensen, explains. Makeup is really driving growth in the prestige beauty market, fueled by the popularity of the selfie. Pioneered by celebrities such as Kim Kardashian, 
It is a trend we see across the board, and makeup is essential to creating the perfect look. As I am sure you know, the media has a huge and somewhat unhealthy influence on what is deemed as an acceptable image, putting pressure on us to buy the right things to achieve the right look. And as I said before, it is not sinful to buy the newest photo-ready foundation, but at the end of the day, it comes down to what our motivation is for doing it. We should not become obsessed or idolise our outward image, as this does lead to sin. But I think we should ask ourselves how much time and thought we give to it. How do you feel if you walk out the house without any makeup on? Can you even bear to do it? So when I was growing up as a Christian, I used to listen to some music from a rapper called Lecrae, and he wrote a song about identity. And some of his words say this, Her beauty is a godliness, and she hasn't got to flaunt it because it's obvious identity is found in the God that we trust. In verse 4, Peter introduces this godly identity about a hidden heart with a gentle and quiet spirit that is imperishable and very precious before God. The idea of a godly wife is not new to Peter. For example, in Proverbs 31.10, it says this, An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. So God's really been speaking to me during my preparation for today about the inner beauty that we are called to pursue. And I don't know about you, but if someone asked you what your thoughts on inner beauty were to look like, I would maybe picture a beautiful lady with plaques in her hair floating through a meadow picking flowers. Or, and singing. Or perhaps something very fragile and delicate like a flower. And to be perfectly truthful with you, these ideas do not sit well with me, personally, and I think sometimes Christian women can be misguided around this, and I do not think it is realistic to what Peter is discussing in these verses. <coughs> Excuse me. Actually, what I have found, the more I have been thinking about this, I've thought of a helpful picture to have in our minds, is that of a pearl inside an oyster shell. So a pearl is beautiful. It's a beautiful mineral that grows inside mollusks, or for the point of this illustration, just an oyster. It is of high value and of worth, but it is formed deep within the oyster shell, and it is not on the surface. Likewise, the hidden person of the heart is not visible in itself, but revealed through words and actions, and these are a reflection of our inner attitudes. So an oyster doesn't just suddenly produce a pearl. It can sometimes take years for the calcium carbonate and mother of pearl to be coated onto the pearl, building on it layer by layer. Similarly, it can take time to cultivate an imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. It is a process of maturity and it grows through life experiences and deepen our relationships with Jesus. In Galatians 5, gentleness is listed as one of the fruits of the spirit and as we know, all fruit takes time to grow. Wayne Goodrum, when talking about gentleness, says, it means not insistent on one's own rights, not pushy, not selfishly assertive, not demanding one's own way. Such a gentle and quiet spirit will be beautiful to other human beings, even unbelieving husbands, but even more importantly, it is something which in God's sight is very precious. Why? No doubt, because such a spirit is the result of quiet and continual trust in God to supply one's needs. 
God's delight in being trusted. Can you relate to any of the behaviours that he's spoken about? So, the production of a pearl, natural or cultured, starts when a parasite, organic matter, or grain of sand enters into the oyster shell. And if it can't spit it out, it causes a pearl sac to be formed around it to protect it as a, because it's a threat. So this defence mechanism then starts the process of layering up the pearl, and it stops the oyster from being damaged, and the outcome is a beautiful pearl. So as I mentioned a minute ago, our growth comes through life experiences, both good and bad. Mum always says to me, it's not what happens to you, it is how you handle it. Our maturity can grow out of irritations, out of threats and difficulties that we have to go through. What situations and circumstances have we faced in our lives, or are we facing, that God can grow pearls of wisdom and beauty in? In his commentary, Juan Sanchez explains what some of the characteristics of inner beauty can look like. He says this, Notice that to be gentle and quiet is not incompatible with being extroverted, talkative, humorous, enthusiastic, and so on. And notice, too, that the qualities of gentleness and quietness betray strength and not weakness. I found this quote really freeing and inspiring. And in Peter, in verse 5, Peter goes on to give us another inspiration for pursuing an imperishable beauty by referring to the holy women who have hoped in God and adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands. It is important as women that we take time to look at those who have gone before us and see how this submission has worked itself out. So while we were on holiday, as soon as Eva went down for her daytime nap, Sam and I would find the closest patch of sun and get our books out to do some reading, because sometimes it is a rare occasion in our household. And I actually managed to finish a book. It was a short book within a bigger book, but I still class that finishing a book. So I was reading about Tamar, who was married to Jacob's son, Ur, and we can find out about her in the, in the book of Genesis. I was so struck how she submitted first to God and secondly to her husband, despite often being in very difficult circumstances. Peter gives the example of Abraham's wife, Sarah, who recognised his authority, the calling he had, and the leadership that he had over her. And, he chose to, and she chose to submit to him even though some situations that they faced were scary and uncertain. When we submit to our husbands and do good without fear, as Sarah did, we are called her children, and this means that we are brought into the promises of Israel and we share her inheritance. To be perfectly honest with you, submitting to Sam isn't a difficult choice to make, but I have had moments where I have struggled and it is a lesson I am still learning and growing in. When I have a post-submission, it is God who I turn to. So my hope in God is secure, and it is through that hope that I am motivated to submit and trust Sam's leadership over me. Before I hand back to Sam, I would just like to end on this quote with you from Michael Eaton. There should be no fear in wifely submission. It is not timidity and fearfulness. It is bold, confident, happy, devoted loyalty. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honour to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you for the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Before Steph and I were engaged, I asked uh, for permission to ask 
If I could, if I could marry her, I asked Steve, her father, and I asked Tracy as well. So I asked for permission, actually, if it was all right for me to, to ask Steph to marry me. And then at the start of the, the wedding ceremony, pretty much one of the first things that the vicar asks is, he asks who's given the bride away. He asked, who is it that's given Steph away? And, and Steve piped up and he said, it's me. He was giving his daughter to me. What he was doing was he was entrusting her into my care. I'm sure that was a very costly thing for him to do. For me to love, to care for and to protect her and to lead her and to lead her well. That's what would have been his hopes for, for me as Steph's husband. But what then if I wasn't leading Steph well? What if I wasn't caring for her? What if I wasn't honouring her? In the way that, that we were with one another. And what, what if Steve knew that that was the case? The reason I'm asking this is because if this was the case, I would expect my relationship with Steve to be affected. As her father, I would expect that to be the case. But ultimately, my responsibility in living with Steph in an understanding way and in honouring her does not ultimately lie before Steve, but it lies before God. Husbands, you need to keep that in the forefront of your mind. Ultimately, you are responsible before God for the way in which you live with your wife and in the way that you treat her. You're accountable to him, first and foremost, above all else. See, when a husband doesn't treat his wife in a godly way, his relationship with God is affected. In a way, it's, sort of, it, it's interrupted. That's what Peter is saying right at the very end. He says, actually, uh, live in this way so that your prayers may not be hindered. That he's saying, actually, if you're not living in this way, if you're not treating your wives well, if you're not living in an understanding way, and if you're not honouring her, then your relationship with God is going to be affected in some way. John Calvin said that prayer is the chief exercise of faith. What he's saying is actually that's one of the primary ways in which our faith is, is expressed. Because it's all to do with relationship with God. Prayer is learning to enjoy what Jesus has always enjoyed. It's about enjoying the Father. Prayer is about communication. It's about fellowship. It's about conversation. It's about enjoyment of one another. So actually, if, if, Jesus, if, if God is saying that actually your prayers are going to be hindered because of the way that you're living with and treating your wife, know that it's because that relationship with God is going to be affected in some way. It's so important to God how we are with our wives. It doesn't affect only your relationship with your wife, the way that you live. It will affect your relationship with God as well. So husbands, see your wife as God sees her, as treasured and beloved. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Or another way of, of putting that is according to knowledge. It's knowledge of God's purposes and principles for marriage. But I think more than that, it's knowledge of your wife. It's about knowing who she is. It's about having knowledge of her dreams, of her concerns, her hopes, her fears, her strengths, her weaknesses. What is God saying to her at the moment? Where is she perhaps struggling at the moment? What are the things that are bringing her joy? Does she feel cared for and protected? Does she feel she's being led well? I think as well, husbands, really uh, seek your wife's wisdom and insight in situations as well. 
value them, be deliberate in asking for them. This knowledge will only come through unhurried times of private fellowship as husband and wife. That's the only way it can happen, through giving one another time to just be with one another and to share your hearts with one another, to be honest with one another. Husband, (coughs) pursue your wife. Do not become lazy. Do not become neglectful, whether that's intentional or not. Do not let other relationships come in at the expense of the relationship with your wife. Pursue her. Whether you've been married for three years, like me and Steph, whether you've been married for 40 years, like Mike and Lynn, pursue her. Be intentional about spending unhurried time together. That means you might have to assess your life and think, actually, is there anything that's going to be hindering that? Is there anything that could become a problem in that respect? It could be uh, friends, the demand to spend time with friends. could be hobbies or work, social media, computer games, television, or even church. These can be good things, but actually... If, if you're giving yourself to those things at the expense of your relationship with your wife, I'm going to challenge you this morning. Have a think about how you're spending your time. Is it affecting your relationship with your wife? Do you need to make some changes here? Because you need to be pursuing her. Do not become lazy. Do not take things for granted or become over-familiar. There is always something new to be learning. And it is important that we get that unhurried time together. You see, God is calling your wife to submit to your leadership. I think that's a big call. That's a big, big ask that God is making. So do everything you can do to make it a decision that she will make gladly. Husbands, do everything that you can do to make it a decision that she will make gladly, that she's willingly to submit to you. Not that it's something that's going to be hard, a hard decision for her to make, although of course there'll be challenges along the way and we're constantly learning and growing together as we go. Now, when Peter refers to, to wives as the weaker vessel, again, this is, again, something that uh, culturally w- would not necessarily be viewed that well, I think. But most commentaries would agree that this is referring, in general, that, that men would be physically stronger, uh, that observation. And what Peter's saying is, husbands, do not use your physicality or your physical strength to control or dominate your wife. Instead, use it for good. Because Peter, he's condemning, domineering and controlling and he's encouraging a spirit of care and protection. Use your strength to protect and to care for your wife. Not as a way of controlling or manipulating her. Ephesians 5, 28 to 31 says that husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as God does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Guys, this is a really helpful thing to understand. Love your wife as you would would love yourself, as you would cherish and nourish yourself. That's the way you're meant to be with your wife as well. That's what it means to honour her. That's what it means to live with her in an understanding way. Why? Because when you, you come together as man and wife, you become one flesh. Think of her as you think of yourself in that respect. There's no hierarchy here. There's no kind of uh, levels of status. Love her as Christ loves the church. Going to be, be bringing things to a close in just a moment. We're going to come back to a time of worship. 
But I just want to finish with this, really. We, we've called this sermon One Flesh, One Future. We've touched a bit on this uh, idea of, of one flesh, that when husband and wife come together, they're, they're united, uh, that they don't work out this relationship in isolation, but they work it through together, that husbands are called to love their wives as they would love themselves, to nourish her and to cherish her. But I think this idea of one future is really helpful as well, and it's something that Peter touches on. What I mean by that is that we don't have different destinations or different futures in God. We're heading in the same direction, in that we're heading towards the same inheritance, which at the start of the letter Peter describes as being imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Husbands and wives, you are heirs together of exactly the same promise. It's not that men will have one inheritance And ladies will have another one. Actually, understand this. Husbands, your wives are heirs with you of the same promise. We have different roles. But we are equally made in God's image. We are equal in in eternal importance. We are equal in eternal importance. Show your wives honour because they are heirs with you to the grace of life. They are those that will share in the same imperishable inheritance. God thinks exactly the same about your wife as he does about you. There's no reason why you should think any different. Your wife is made in God's image just as you are. Jesus Christ died for her just as he died for you. She is an heir of God and co-heir with Christ just as you are. I'm going to finish this. I want to read through that again. And guys, if you're married, I want you to really think through what I'm saying here. And when I'm talking about, when I say like your wife... I really want you to just have her at the very forefront of your mind and allow this to sink in. Your wife is made in God's image just as you are. Jesus Christ died for her just as he died for you. She is an heir of God and a co-heir with Christ just as you are. Allow that to shape the way in which you relate to her, in which you care for her, protect her, honour her and lead her. Can we have the band? come up we're going to hand back over we're going to come back and worship God just while the band are getting ready I just want to pray for us Uh, can we stand let's get ourselves prepared let's get ourselves ready to come and worship I think there's been there's been a lot actually in this time that we've spent a lot that's come through and I think it's good just to bring it all before God but let's pray